Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It is time for Unearthed Part 2. This uh, part two of this time's Unearthed has the shipwrecks and the exhumations and some repatriations. Um, more stuff than I was expecting about Vikings, <laughs> along with some other categories. Uh, although, this time around, we did not have a standalone episode update section like we've been having for a while. We do still have potpourri, which is where I just put all the stuff that I thought was cool but could not find a category that united all of it. And that is where we will start. So first up in potpourri, the history of the British Royal Navy is often traced back to 9th century King Alfred the Great, noting that he launched a naval fleet to repel a Viking invasion. But according to research published in the International Journal of Nautical Archaeology in August, British naval warfare predates Alfred's reign. That paper by Ph.D. candidate Matt Firth and Dr. Aaron Sebo traces British naval warfare back to an engagement in 851, which is described in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, whereas Alfred's first recorded sea battle was in 875. Uh, So being not British, I have have no personal experience with uh, this, but the headlines about this paper had the same sort of um, sort of emotional tone as a, a United States headline might have along the lines of, we're sorry, everyone. It turns out George Washington did not chop down the cherry tree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm under the impression that it is very commonly held and, uh, and like important to people belief that the British Royal Navy was started by King Alfred the Great, which uh, turns out not. I don't know that it's emotionally important to people to think that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree, but that was the only example I could think of. Anyway, uh, there's a project called Beacons of the Past that has been training volunteers, which the project calls citizen scientists, to help look through large-scale LIDAR surveys of the Chiltern Hills Um, just basically to make it feasible to go through all of that data. And some of these volunteers spotted evidence of a hill fort, which the research team confirmed is really being there on August 6th of this year. This site dates back to between 800 and 500 BCE, and it was hidden under foliage. Its exact location has been kept secret in order to protect it, and while there are no current plans to excavate it, there are plans to preserve the site. Moving on, also in August, the painting Two Laughing Boys with a Mug of Beer by Franz Hals, who's a painter from the Dutch Golden Age, was stolen for the third time. This time, thieves forced open the back door of the Hofje van Arden Museum. They stole the painting, and then they were gone by the time police arrived. Two Laughing Boys with a Mug of Beer had previously been stolen in 1998, along with another painting, and then it had been stolen again in 2011. Obviously, it was recovered both of those times. This latest theft took place on August 26th. As of when we are recording this, it has not yet been recovered. The museum tightened up its security after that 2011 theft, but when this most recent burglary happened, it was closed because of the pandemic. Moving on into a completely unrelated find, 
The Israel Antiquities Authority announced the discovery of a soap-making workshop in southern Israel. This is a 1,200-year-old soapery and is the oldest one to be discovered in the area. The soap that was made there was from olive oil mixed with ash, the ash being made from burning saltwort plants. And in addition to finding materials and objects related to the making of soap, other finds from the site included some game boards, one of them a strategy game called Windmill, and the other for a game that was called either Hounds and Jackals or 58 Holes. Hounds and Jackals sounds cooler. Um, <laughs> lastly in potpourri, archaeologists in Poland have found part of a bowl adorned with a human face. The bowl is about 7,000 years old, and the parts that have survived include the eyes and the nose, and the forehead, which in this case has what appear to be small horns. It's a pretty neat-looking bowl, which makes it unfortunate that this is an audio podcast. Uh, We are going to move on to a couple of exhumations. First up... James Blessing, grandson of Warren G. Harding, is trying to have the former U.S. president's remains exhumed for DNA testing so that Blessing can scientifically prove his ancestry. Blessing's mother, Elizabeth Ann Blessing, was the daughter of Harding and Nan Britton. Harding and Britton had an extramarital affair before and during Warren's presidency. Britton had detailed their affair in a memoir called The President's Daughter in 1927. The thing is, at this point, no one is really questioning the idea that Blessing is Harding's descendant anymore. In 2015, Ancestry DNA confirmed a genetic link between James Blessing and two other Harding family members, and that was enough to establish that Blessing and the former president were related. But the 100th anniversary of Harding's election to the presidency is this year, and apparently, Blessing didn't feel that he or his mother had gotten the recognition they were due at the Warren G. Harding Presidential Center's planned commemorations. Thus, this request for DNA testing. So at first, some of the other Harding family members didn't seem to really object to this proposed exhumation, Uh, That changed, though, after it turned out that he was planning to have a reality TV crew on hand for it. Because it seems like the biggest, most high-profile exhumations we talk about on the show now are going to be on TV. Um, As of when this episode was researched in early October of 2020, this issue is still unsettled about whether that will all go forward. In other news, human remains were discovered in San Antonio, Texas on May 13th during an archaeological and cultural investigation in advance of some construction work. The remains were exhumed following a spiritual ceremony in September. Groups of people who may be descended by the people whose bodies were found were gathered for that ceremony, including the members of the San Antonio 1718 Founding Families and Descendants and Canary Islands Descendants Association. The remains will be reinterred after the construction is complete, and that is currently scheduled for summer of 2023. We have a few repatriations to talk about this time as well, and we are moving on to those. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science has returned a collection of 30 wooden statues to the Mijikanda tribe, which lives in Kenya and northern Tanzania. 
These carvings are meant as both memorials to people who are deceased and as the embodiment of those people's spirits. So in the words of Stephen Nash, the museum's curator of anthropology, which was quoted by the Denver Post, quote, once we realized that we were curating the physical embodiment of 30 dead people's souls, that's when we said, look, the Mijikanda never had a chance for informed consent like you and I enjoy when disposing of our loved ones. We should not be curating people's souls. The statues, known as Vagongo, had been donated to the museum in 1991 by Gene Hackman. But when the museum tried to contact his representatives about it, they didn't have any record of the transaction. So with no documentation to go on, it took some time to figure out how they should be repatriated and to whom. An effort in 2014 was paused when the government of Kenya set a $40,000 import tariff on the statues. The government reversed that decision in 2019, and the repatriation was reported in the Denver Post this July. The Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongarea, has returned a woven cloak and helmet that belonged to Hawaiian chief Kalani Opo'u. They returned that back to Hawaii. So these items had been given to James Cook in 1779 as an act of formal diplomacy. And then from there, they had changed hands a few different times before being donated to the Te Papa Museum's predecessor, which was the Dominion Museum, back in 1912. So these items had gone through sort of a whole journey to get from Hawaii to New Zealand. And repatriation discussions had been ongoing for seven years. And in 2016, the Te Papa Museum had sent them to Honolulu's Bernice Pauahi Bishop Museum as a long-term loan. Now they will stay with the Honolulu Museum permanently. On our last repatriation, Belgium returned a Mayan jade mask to Guatemala this September. This mask was made of jade mosaic and dates back to between the years 600 and 900, It had been illegally trafficked out of the country. This mask represents the god Chuck, who is a Mayan rain deity. And the return of this mask also took a while. It was seized in Belgium in 2008. We are going to have some shipwrecks in just a little bit, but before we get to those, we're going to pause for a sponsor break. We have got several shipwrecks to talk about this time around. And this first one has some news that technically broke on October 1st. And this is technically an unearthed for July, August, and September. (laughs) But I'm counting it. I'm counting it for unearthed this time around. It was too big of a bit of news to just leave for later. Divers believe that they have found the wreck of the cargo steamer SS Karlsruhe which may help solve the mystery of what happened to the Amber Room. The Amber Room is a chamber made of amber panels, which Nazis dismantled and looted from the Catherine Palace near St. Petersburg. It had been given to Peter the Great as a gift in 1716. There is an episode in the archive on what happened to the Amber Room. The Amber Room was last seen in the port of Konigsberg. The Karlsruhe set sail from that port in 1945 as part of Operation Hannibal, which was a mass evacuation of German troops and civilians. It was clearly laden with cargo and more than 1,000 people, but it was sunk off the coast of Poland. So that's been a popular theory about what happened to the Amber Room. We don't know for sure whether the Amber Room is part of the cargo on this wreck, but it is an intriguing idea. Yes. 
changing gears a little bit, in September, photographs from a remote-operated vehicle revealed the location of a different German ship, which, to make things confusing, is also called the Karlsruhe. The cruiser SS Karlsruhe was sunk in 1940 off the coast of Norway. The remote-operated vehicle surveys followed a sonar survey that had been conducted by Norway's state-run power grid operator, Stotnet, back in 2017. The ship's features, including its gun turrets and swastikas, are clearly visible in the photos. So this ship had been part of the German invasion of Norway. It had been damaged by Norwegian artillery and a British torpedo before being scuttled by the Germans on April 9th of 1940. It is not far away from an underwater power cable that runs between Denmark and Norway, which is how it was spotted. I know a lot of people at this stage uh, of, of all the many crises that have been simultaneously unfolding in the United States and, the, and around the world um, have found themselves sort of like not really being able to think clearly. And I happened to read these two articles. I was going through the shipwreck part of my preparation and I read these, I read these two articles back to back and I was so colossally confused <laughs> um, and wondering... Uh, whether somebody had made up the Amber Room story out of whole cloth until I just finally figured out they were two different ships with the same name. Just to confuse us. I mean, really, what are the odds, right? In the same <laughs> year, within a few months of each other, like, eh. Well, they were, I think it was, it was the Amber Room ship was sunk a few years later, but it, like, was still within the same war. Oh, no, I mean the discovery and discussion oh, right. of them oh, happening sure. so close together is the what are the odds part for me. Yes, and I'd, I had just this baffling moment of staring at the screen like, what is going on? Yeah. Uh, moving on. In August, a team of divers announced that they had found the wreck of a 17th century Dutch merchantman off the coast of Finland. That was a find they came across by surprise while looking for wrecks from the First and Second World Wars. Their organization, Badavena, is dedicated to documenting shipwrecks from those eras. The wreck is a mostly intact flout, which was a style of ship that was built for efficiency in trade. Its rigging could be operated with a small crew, and that crew all lived together in the same space instead of having their living space separated by where they were in the ship's hierarchy of command. Uh, it also sailed without guns, so it could dis- uh, devote all of its space to cargo. Researchers at East Carolina University have been studying shipwreck microbiology. Based on their study of the wreck of the Pappy Lane, which was built as a World War II warship and abandoned after running aground in the 1960s, a wide range of microorganisms can live in one wreck. Some of these help preserve the wreckage, while others are destructive. And to do this work, the team examined parts of the ship that were corroded and parts that were not, as well as the nearby sediment and seawater, and they found thousands of species of bacteria. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it wasn't an entirely surprising number of species, um, but they sort of found a surprising number of distinct ecosystems in different parts of the wreck and its surroundings. 
In the words of Dr. Aaron Field, assistant professor in the Department of Biology at East Carolina University, quote, historically, shipwreck sites were treated as a single environment. But our research goes deeper, showing that there are different microbial communities within single wreck sites and associated with the wreck itself. As such, we need to tailor conservation efforts to each shipwreck in order to more effectively mitigate biocorrosion and deterioration. Researchers have identified a shipwreck found off the coast of Mexico in 2017 as La Union, a ship that was used to transport Maya people to Cuba to work as enslaved laborers in sugarcane fields. The ship sank after its boilers exploded in September of 1861. So this ship itself had been part of the oral history of the region. This happened during an armed uprising known as the Cast War of the Yucatan. After Mexico had become independent from Spain, public land was redistributed to private citizens to establish new haciendas. And a lot of the people who had been living and farming that land were Maya. Without this land, they had no way to sustain themselves, and that led to a massive insurrection. Even though slavery was illegal in Mexico, authorities started capturing Maya and deporting them to Cuba. In some cases, the deported people had been part of this uprising. But in others, they had been deceived into signing contracts to travel to Cuba to work. But the terms of those contracts were virtually indistinguishable from slavery. So, when the La Union sank, about half of the crew were killed, along with about 60 passengers. But one thing that is not totally clear is whether any of those passengers on this particular voyage were Maya. This ship was definitely part of this slave trade, but we don't know whether any enslaved people were on board during this specific voyage, because they would have been either listed as cargo or not listed at all. In a find that also could have gone under edibles and potables, researchers have used DNA to figure out what kind of fish was on board the Danish flagship Gribschunden when it caught fire and sank in 1495. King Hans was traveling to Sweden with the hope of claiming the Swedish throne. But on the way to do that, the Gribschunden sank. All aboard were lost, along with all of the expensive cargo that the king was planning to use to back up his claim to the throne. And this wreckage was actually discovered about 50 years ago. So included in all this cargo was a two-meter-long fish that had been cut into pieces and stored in a wooden barrel. And thanks to this DNA study, we now know that it was an Atlantic sturgeon. The sturgeon was a particular mark of status. It was very sought after for its meat and its roe and its swim bladder, which was used to make a glue called isinglass. In another combination of shipwrecks and edibles and potables, a bottle of whiskey from the wreck of the SS politician was sold at auction for more than $7,000. The politician ran aground in the Outer Hebrides in 1941 while hauling 28,000 cases of whiskey. Efforts to salvage the whiskey while getting around salvage and tax laws were later turned into a book called Whiskey Galore, which is also a great pen name if anybody wants to use it, uh, which later became a movie in 1949, and even later than that was remade in 2016. So unlike so many other times when we talk about somebody unearthing some alcohol and then tasting it, The auction site has a particular note for this bottle of whiskey, which read, quote, this bottle is not suitable for human consumption. So, with that in mind, (laughs) doesn't mean nobody's going to try it, but the auction site advises you not to. They got to cover their bases, man. Uh, (laughs) 
We are going to cover our bases, take a quick break, and then we'll be back in just a bit to talk about Vikings. So I found several things related to Vikings this time around. First up, while working on his master's thesis, Norwegian Arctic University student Tor Kettle Kromerdal found evidence connected to the oldest known trading place in northern Norway. He unearthed these Viking-era artifacts using a metal detector, and they included jewelry, weights, and silver. He had found a reference to a marketplace in the area in a book, and he'd searched the general area with a metal detector before and hadn't found anything impressive, so he really wasn't expecting to find anything significant. But this time, he found artifacts pinpointing a market that had not been previously been part of the archaeological record. In another Viking find, an international team of scientists has unearthed some evidence that Viking raids helped spread smallpox. They found evidence of the virus in skeletal remains from multiple sites around northern Europe. This particular smallpox strain is genetically different from what eventually proliferated around the globe and was eradicated in the 20th century. Although there's written evidence of diseases that are interpreted as being about smallpox, when it comes to DNA evidence, the oldest before this point dated back to the 17th century. The Viking era spanned from about the 9th through the 11th centuries, so that's a big jump back. Yeah. In other news, back in the 1950s, workers digging a trench in Yarm in northern England found a helmet. Locals started calling it the Viking helmet, and it was placed in the Preston Park Museum. But even though people were calling it the Viking helmet, it wasn't uh, totally clear whether it had actual connections to the Vikings. Thanks to analysis of the helmet and the material that it's made of, yes, it does seem to be an actual Viking helmet. It's made of iron, and it dates back to the early medieval period, with a design that suggests an Anglo-Scandinavian origin. This is the first mostly complete Viking helmet found in the region. Our next find is a farmer living outside of Loftehammer, Sweden, who plowed up a large flat stone while working out in the fields and planned to use it as a stepping stone until he realized that it was covered in runes. That point contacted some experts. Runologist Magnus Kallström examined the stone and determined that it dated back to the early 11th century and also deciphered some of the runes as reading, quote, Garter raised this stone after Sigjarv's father, Ogard's husband. There are plans at this point to have the stone preserved and cleaned and then placed somewhere on public display. And now we are getting to what was probably the most widely reported Viking story of the quarter a project to sequence the DNA of Viking remains from all across Europe has confirmed the idea that Viking was more of a job title than a race or an ethnicity, and that not all Vikings hailed from Scandinavia. This research was published in the journal Nature in September under the title Population Genomics of the Viking World. To do this work, the team spent 10 years studying burial sites in Scandinavia from the 8th through 11th centuries, as well as Viking-style burial sites from elsewhere in Europe, and burials that included Viking grave goods. So this included, for example, 40 men who were buried in two Viking ships on a beach in Estonia who had apparently died in a botched raid. 
This was the largest study of Viking DNA to date, and it allowed researchers to see patterns in how people moved from Scandinavia into other parts of Europe. For example, in the words of lead author Ashat Margarian, quote, the Danish Vikings went to England, while the Swedish Vikings went to the Baltic and the Norwegian Vikings went to Ireland, Iceland, and Greenland. However, the Vikings from these three, quote, nations only very rarely mixed genetically. Perhaps they were enemies, or perhaps there is some other valid explanation. We just don't know. The team also mapped how parts of southern Scandinavia near the coast became more genetically diverse, while peasants living inland remained a lot more isolated. In the words of Eska Villerslev, who is another of the paper's authors, quote, the Vikings had a lot more genes from southern and eastern Europe than we anticipated. They frequently had children with people from other parts of the world. In fact, they tend to be dark-haired rather than blonde, which is otherwise uh, considered an established Viking trait. And now we've got a few CT scans of mummies to talk about. There was a surprising number of those also. Jumping from Vikings to mummies. In 1902, a shepherd stumbled into a tomb in Siberia containing the remains of several people wearing death masks. The tomb was excavated in 1969, unearthing mummified remains dating back to the 3rd or 4th century. They belonged to the Tashtuk culture, which was known for elaborate funeral and burial rituals, including the creation of death masks. Scientists at Russia's State Hermitage Museum have conducted a CT scan of one of the heads from this tomb, allowing them to visualize and analyze the face that is underneath the mask. That's something that otherwise would have been impossible to do without damaging it. The mask itself was already damaged, with the area around the mouth and one ear of it missing, and then trying to take it off of the skull would have damaged the tissue underneath. They found evidence of a scar running from the left eye to the left ear, something that may have been sewn shut after the person's death while preparing the body. They also discovered that a hole had been made through the skull with a chisel-like tool, probably to remove the brain, also as part of preparing the body. Another body from the same tomb appears to be that of a woman, and that death mask is a lot more intact, but that one has not gone through a CT scan as of yet. Another CT scan in a different project of an Egyptian mummy who is nicknamed the Mummy of the Screaming Woman has revealed that the woman probably died in her 60s, likely from a heart attack. There was evidence of advanced atherosclerosis throughout the circulatory system. The mummy was given this nickname because her mouth is open as though she's screaming, and the position of her body suggests a sense of pain or terror. The team believes that she was mummified while in a state of rigor mortis, preventing the people who were preparing her body from being able to close her mouth or adjust her positioning. It's still not completely clear whose mummy this was, though. There's writing on the linen used to wrap the body that reads, The Royal Daughter, the Royal Sister of Merit Amun. But there were several Egyptian princesses named Merit Amun, so it's not clear exactly who this is. It is believed that ancient Egyptians mummified as many as 70 million animals as votive offerings, and researchers have used X-ray micro-CT scanning to examine three such animals. They were a snake, a bird, and a cat from the collection held by the Egypt Center at Swansea University. So X-ray micro-CT scanning allows the creation of incredibly detailed images. It's a lot higher resolution than a medical CT scan. And so some of the things that they were able to determine from doing this include that the cat 
was a kitten whose adult teeth hadn't come in yet. The snake was a juvenile Egyptian cobra, and the bird may have been a Eurasian kestrel. So this last one does not involve CT scans, but we still got some mummy action for you. Uh, In September, Egypt's Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities announced the discovery of 13 unopened coffins that had been found at the bottom of a well. That well is almost 40 feet, that's roughly 12 meters deep, and the conditions at the bottom have kept the coffins very well preserved. Since this find is so recent, there's no other information yet about whose coffins these might be, but they're believed to be at least 2,500 years old and still contain human mummies. And as uh, we come to the end of this session of Unearthed, we just have a cool random thing to end on, And that is the latest discovery of a medieval sword pulled out of a lake. This time, the lake is Lednica Lake in Poland. Archaeologists from the Nicholas Copernicus University uh, and the Museum of the First Piast made this find while they were mapping the bottom of the lake. This is the eighth sword to be found in the lake, but the first one in the last 20 years. The sword is fully intact and adorned with a Jerusalem cross, and remnants of its leather scabbard were found as well. So, that brings us to the end of our Unearthed in October, uh, which is really coming out in November. We will do some more Unearthed. Our year-end Unearthed has generally been coming out approximately the very first week of January, so probably we will... Try to stick to that timing again, even though this one's coming out a little later in the fall uh, than last time. And I have some listener mail. Huzzah! Is it about a CT scan on a mummy or a Viking Michelle's? It's about none of that. Oh my goodness. Uh, This is from Emily. Emily says, Good day, ladies. I hope this finds you both wonderfully well. Thank you so much for all your work on the podcast, which is something I'm especially grateful for during this crazy year. Both its entertainment and its educational value are much appreciated in case someone hasn't affirmed that for you today. I'm writing from New York, where during the pandemic, my dance company has been rehearsing on Zoom and learning more dance history, including about a dance called the Shim Sham. During your Q&A episode sometime back, I had a true record scratch moment when Tracy said her favorite research read was Frankie Manning, the ambassador of Lindy Hop. Not only was the book sitting on my desk, but I had just spoken with Cynthia Millman about speaking with the group, which she graciously did. The next time I talked to her, I passed on your kind words. She was delighted and expressed her thanks in return. She's truly dedicated to Frankie Manning's legacy and education in general, still serving as a full-time librarian at a school in New York City, and is incredibly generous with her time and her stories. Given how whitewashed Lindy Hop has become since its revival, her work keeping Frankie's memory and contributions in the foreground is something to greatly respect. So thanks for a nice shout-out to a really lovely woman and the joy it brought me once I picked myself, then my jaw, up off the floor. Attached is a photo we took while reading it that I thought you might enjoy. Hope you're having fun soaking up spooky season. Perhaps purple hair can increase one's absorption rate? Question mark. Warm regards, Emily. Thank you so much, Emily. So the picture that accompanied this was like a screenshot of the Zoom meeting with, I don't know if it was specifically Zoom, but because I don't remember, but uh, with everybody holding up their copies of that Frankie Manning memoir. It was absolutely precious to look at. So thank you so much, Emily. Uh, I feel like we're continuing to do 
as well as one might be expected to do in the times that we are living in. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I mean, it's interesting, right? I feel like, uh, I don't know if you have this moment, we have been very much home all the time. Like, we're not going out. We have gone out maybe seven times total Mm -hmm. since this whole thing started. And when I say seven times, I mean, like, those are, like, necessary things, like a doctor's appointment or something that we couldn't miss. So then there are times when I see people who are like, oh, I just went to Target, and I'm like, am I the only fool that's still just, like, locking myself in my house like some weird postmodern Rapunzel story? (laughs) Um, Our big, big treats has been going to the farmer's market because the farmer's market is outdoors. Everyone's in a mask. um, Everyone has to stay six feet apart. There's, like... Usually weather permitting, there's little lines on the ground marking how far apart that is. So it feels pretty safe. And that's like our big, our big treat. We're coming up on the end of farmer's market season. So I don't know what our big treat is going to be after that. Um, Most of my doing of things outside of the house has been um, hiking on unpopular trails. (laughs) So that I can go hiking. Yeah, I can. I also uh, I do this by myself a lot, and so like be uh, be sharing my location with with my husband just in case something happens to me out in the woods. Um, Yeah, yeah. Same. We also are not. (laughs) I I don't know an answer as to whether purple hair augments your absorption of Halloweenosity. Uh huh. I mean, it's definitely born of the same seed right (laughs) for sure for sure I don't know if I've if we've ever talked about it that I dyed my hair all over purple for the first time yes I'm acknowledging it's not natural um on the Haunted Mansion's birthday oh I didn't know that which was like I don't when did I start doing it five years ago or something yeah if you had ever told me that I forgot yeah so it's directly related Um, but I am doing lots of Halloween fun things just by myself with my husband. Yep. Yep. So thank you, Emily, for writing. Thanks to all the folks who have written in just to check in on how we're doing. We're hanging in there. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast or at historypodcast at iheartradio.com, we're all over social media as Miss in History. So that's where you'll find our Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else that you get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 